This is a disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm still not here with my co-host Lee. I'm Lee, and I'm still not here with my co-host Peter. It's getting lame saying that. I think we were saying like right before we started that I I missed like sitting across the table from you. <laughs> yep, and I was agreeing with that because I, it's been except a while. like today, because you said that you just ate shawarma. I'm a toxic biohazard right now and you ate shawarma so <laughs> <laughs> double down yeah you know? yeah, yeah. Oh. <clears throat> uh you're joining us for a major disaster before we dive into that i got a little bit of housekeeping that i do up front the first thing is if you're new here welcome happy to have you if you're wondering the best thing to do to help us out it's to tell a friend to listen that's that's the best thing you can do just uh, if you like what you hear spread the word that's fantastic Tell your friends please the next best thing you can do is leave a rating or review wherever you listen i think apple podcast is still probably the best place to do that you can also keep up with what we're doing on our social medias at this disaster pod twitter instagram and facebook and our website www.thisdisasterpod.com also our patreon.com slash this disaster pod where we've got new micro disaster episodes that are coming out every two weeks now we just released a surprise bit of bonus content to go with one of our tragedy tuesdays with nuclear norm about the metric system you also uh you get access to the live stream of us recording these major disasters so you can see everything that goes on behind the scenes how many times we actually say um versus how many times it shows up in the final episode um um i just said um didn't i uh, oh <laughs> no you weren't joking i got distracted by the live stream that's another example of the kind of thing that gets edited out edited out behind the curtains a lot of things behind the curtains going on if you ordered a shirt in our pre-order then those are in production and they should be shipping out soon so look out for those hey man let me just say if you ordered a shirt thank you so much because oh yeah that is that is major that's a big deal yeah yeah that's cool. This is coming from two dudes that have played in bands together and sat at merch tables <laughs> where nothing moves. <laughs> nothing moves, so, but your self-esteem and it goes down. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, like sincerest thanks to everybody that's bought a shirt so far. If you're thinking about buying a shirt, that is super helpful. Obviously, no pressure, but it's a pretty sweet shirt. And right before we dive into the disaster, I've got a little bit of listener feedback. And this is one that I need you to weigh in on, Lee, too. So I asked a question on the Instagram. And here's the question. You can only use one utensil to survive the apocalypse. Is it a knife, a fork, or a spoon? And why? <laughs> uh, I guess I would go with a fork. Fork? Or maybe I'd go with a spoon and maybe, maybe I'd... Can I turn the spoon into a spork? Well... Show your work. Why spoon? Well, you can't eat soup with a fork. <laughs> and, you know, we are going to be eating a lot of canned goods, although I guess you could just drink the thing. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think what would what would be the best multitasking tool. Mm-hmm. Well, I can give I you some know. answers that we got. Okay. So the very first one was spoon. You can scoop things with it, and you can always use a sharp stick as a knife slash fork. Yeah. So maybe that'll that'll color your... Then we got one from uh, Off the Beaten Path. Someone suggested chopsticks because you can eat kill fire and survive if you know how to use chopsticks if you know how to use chopsticks (laughs) got a vote for knife just knife exclamation mark just knife what if it's a butter knife though i mean i can i can get behind that i got my pocket knife on me at all times but i mean if it's a gigantic survival knife i'll go with that and just do everything else with my hands like a dirty animal never eat soup again (laughs) exactly (laughs) also i got uh one for fork because it's a stabby weapon you got to use it for climbing and it's a comb or rake. <laughs> so sure. <laughs> it's good that you still want to groom yourself in the, you know, the post-apocalyptic days. Yeah. And then we did actually get a vote again, another one off the beaten path for spork. And I think one of our patrons in the live stream also said spork. 
Spork, huh? Because the best of both worlds, pointy stabby in the front and scoopy soupy in the back. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. And also that triggered a memory of mine. I once saw a spork and the opposite end was a knife. Oh. And I, I was trying to figure out what to call it. And my wife and I landed on spoomph. <laughs> Sorry, try that again. Spoomph. Because it's fork, <laughs> fork, spoon, and knife. Spoomph. Okay. Spoomph. Anyway, in that series, the knife won, surprisingly. I mean... Or maybe not surprisingly. No, I mean... I mean, I'm a knife aficionado uh, in terms of carrying a pocket knife, but <laughs> I also... That question came up as I was, like, putting utensils back in the drawer in the kitchen, and I thought to myself... I added the apocalyptic bent, but I was thinking to myself, what is one utensil... If I could only use one utensil for the rest of my life, what would it be? And I think it'd be a spoon. Yeah. Because for most applications, like scooping eating you can use the edge to cut stuff yeah how many times do you need to stab something with a fork that you couldn't just scoop it with a spoon i don't know i was thinking uh, uh yeah i don't know i would yeah. say quite a bit but well i mean that's okay. going to be a, a miserable time trying to eat your steak or your yeah you know. well what are you gonna do what are you gonna do let's just agree that i'm right about this one and move on uh, okay because <laughs> it's a ridiculous <laughs> scenario <laughs> exactly yeah you were right it's spoon. The people have spoken. Uh, knife in a survival situation. Spoon yes. close second, I think. Spoon in a more domesticated yeah. situation. One last thing before we get to, into the disaster. We got a little bit of uh, feedback on our Apple podcasts in the form of a review mm. by Paul Bright. That's his name on Apple Podcasts. So I'm assuming that he's not, doesn't mind me sharing it. It was just about uh, the Four Bad Nights Tragedy Tuesday that we did. Okay. And I guess he had an issue a little bit with how... We, I guess specifically, <laughs> I dealt with certain aspects of the Hillsborough disaster. Okay. He just mentioned that sometimes it felt like I was being a little bit too flippant, maybe, mm-hmm. I guess, mm. which honestly wasn't, wasn't really my intention. And I guess the reason that I'm bringing it up now is because, you know, sometimes people tune into the podcast and maybe we bring levity to a lot of these things and maybe that's not what people are looking for. So that's, that's fine. Yeah. But the thing that did stick, stick with me is uh, he mentioned at one point how I was mentioning like, know your exits as kind of like a salute, not a solution, but I maybe joking around a little bit that knowing your exits would help a lot in those kinds of situations. And I think, I think the reason that I bring it, okay. So the reason that I bring it up is the tone that we try to go for in the podcast is we bring levity and we laugh, but we always want to make sure that we're laughing at the right people. If you know what I mean? Yeah. So like when it comes to Hillsborough, the target for most of it, I think was the poor planning and the poor layout and you know the 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 guy in charge there who tried to make changes and only made it worse yeah what did he say like oh bollocks nothing's gonna go wrong or something like that exactly so that's the kind of thing that we want to bring levity to it's never our intention to make the butt of the joke the people that are actually victims of any of these disasters and i think that i came kind of close there yeah it's 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 and it's an ongoing concern with this show because yeah i mean yeah, we're we're cracking a lot of jokes, but we're talking about some pretty dark subject matter. Yeah. So Yeah, but I think we've been we've been conscious. I know I have and you have as well. Like and there's been stuff that we've cut that it comes close to, you know, not laughing at, but there's certain things that warrant making a joke out of. Yeah. And I think maybe in the Hillsborough situation, me saying know your exits puts a little bit too much of the responsibility on the fans that were just unwittingly herded into this crappy nightmare scenario. Right, right, right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for calling me out, Paul Bright. It's something that uh, we're conscious of, and I think that time maybe I strayed a little too close to things that we don't laugh about. Yeah. I mean, that's... 
it's good to hear that kind of stuff because we we can probably uh, improve on that and not be so yeah flippant, like you said. I also appreciate the form that that took because he gave us five stars and he said that he really enjoyed the Woodstock 99 episode. So it was in the form of like constructive criticism. It oh, wasn't, okay. Well, wasn't tearing us down. So thanks. Thanks for putting it that way. And uh, class act. Yeah. I just want to address that before going on to the disaster. No, absolutely. On to the disaster. All right. So one fine day in the 1780s, a group of settlers brushed aside some tall grass, wandered into a clearing near a great lake in modern-day Illinois, and said, what the fuck is that smell? <laughs> Just another day in 1780. <laughs> the Native American Potawatomi explained to the settlers that it was garlic growing in the woods nearby, and they used the Miami, Illinois word shikakwa, which refers to the type of wild garlic that grew in the area. Mm, yummy. So just as settlers slapped the label Indian on any indigenous person wherever they went. <laughs> yeah. See Smallpox in Mexico, episode six, and Roanoke, mm-hmm. episode 15. Chicago became Chicago in a French explorer's writing in the late 17th century. And Chicago became Chicago in yet another French explorer's journal. And then by the <laughs> 1780s, when the city was more or less officially founded, Chicago completed its transformation into Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. That actually reminds me. Do you remember those heritage minutes? In Canada, we had these heritage minute commercials where it's just like little bite-sized, like two, three minute versions of Canadian history. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. You know what I'm going to (laughs) say? So there's one where where Jacques Cartier, who's basically like a French explorer credited for claiming Canada for France, he encounters a tribe of indigenous people in Canada. One One of the indigenous men points to a camp and he's saying, Kanata. Yeah. And that's a Huron Iroquois word meaning village. And then in this heritage minute, Jacques is like, ah, yes, this land is called Canada. <laughs> and the core explorers, like, pre- I'm pretty sure he means the, the village. I think that's yeah. the word for village. No, no, no. I'm in charge here. <laughs> it means the land. Yeah. And that's what it's called. <laughs> in the same way that we landed here and just call every person we meet an yeah. Indian. Hey, this Indian, land is you? called Canada. No. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I just have this image of like the Native Americans in the area being like Chicago and the settlers being like Chicago nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so the chief settler was Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, the chief mm. settler of Chicago. And okay. he's actually an enigmatic explorer. He had, there's like nothing known about him prior to 1770. Uh-huh. So like he's known for founding a settlement that would turn into Chicago. And that's pretty much it. Hmm. So he established a trading post at the mouth of the Chicago River where it connects to Lake Michigan. Okay. So even though Dusab is credited as Chicago's founder, the region didn't technically belong to the United States until 1795. Oh, really? Following a fair trade, you may ask, when that depends on your thoughts on the exchange of musket <laughs> rounds for territory, I guess. Uh, wow. That's a fair <laughs> so, deal if I ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> So from 1785 to 1795, the newly confederated United States, uh, and they, I guess, were confederated in 1781, fought the Northwest Indian War. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Every time I come across that now, it's just so stupid. <laughs> you know they weren't. The first thing you found out is that you're not in India. Doesn't exactly. matter. Anyway, this Northwest Indian War against was against a coalition of Native American tribes supported by the British. So the U.S. spent most of the conflict getting their asses handed to them until about 1792 when General Mad Anthony Wayne was put in charge of the U.S. forces by President George Washington. Oh, he's and, mad. Right? I guess if you want to get something done, put a man with the name Mad in charge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? 
he's all about. It's Mad Dog around. He'll know what to do. I don't want to hear the story that got him that nickname, is what I'm no. saying. <laughs> I'm Mad Anthony Jones. I'm here to kick ass and take names. <laughs> Probably. When all was said and done, the Native American and British forces were defeated, and they were forced to make concessions, including the land around part of modern-day Chicago. Hmm. And the first thing the U.S. did was build a fort, as you might have they love that. from episode 15. They love building <laughs> forts. I know they love their forts. Yeah. And that was Fort Dearborn, which was burned down in the Battle of Fort Dearborn, only to be rebuilt in the rebuilding of Fort Dearborn. <laughs> you gotta love the stick to of it. <laughs> yeah. Should we give it a different name? Nah. It's like it never burned down. Well, if they burn it down again, we'll build it again. So in 1833, indigenous peoples were forced out of the area. Sure. And the U.S. were probably feeling kind of bold following that whole War of 1812 thing. Right. Chicago was officially founded with a population of around 200 people, and that grew to around 6,000 by 1840. So that's seven years. Mm. It developed into an important trading hub between Eastern and Western U.S. So you got railroads and ports going in there. It became a flourishing city with a growing population, and it also built a substantial infrastructure. Mm. I should have mentioned at the outset, this is a sidebar about the history of Chicago. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm just setting it up. I'm setting it up. You I'm setting set up this beautiful city. Before you tell the story. Exactly. But we're, we're getting into the meat of it now. So anyway, they also built a substantial infrastructure, including a sewer system. And if you'll think back a couple episodes, the Minoans are probably like, <laughs> we were there like 5,000 years ago. BFD, dudes. Yeah. We're not impressed. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> At the same time, 14th century France is like, quoi? <laughs> <laughs> you mean you found somewhere to put your peas and poops? <laughs> <laughs> That's French for what? Anyway. <laughs> Remember how 17th century London was a disgusting box of matches? I do, yeah. 19th century Chicago may not have been caked in shit, but it wasn't particularly <laughs> fireproof. Okay. So speaking of infrastructure, the roads were paved, but predominantly mm. with wood planks. <laughs> and even the extensive sidewalks, which are more extensive than the roads, were made of wood. Wow. The new-at-the-time Union Stockyards, also known as the Meatpacking District, had thoroughfares paved with wooden blocks to protect the hooves of the animals on their way to slaughter. <laughs> Which, I mean, okay. Sounds like the Ewok Village or something. Right. <laughs> on the ground, though. Well, that, but also, like, you have these wooden walkways to protect the hooves of animals that yeah. are imminently going to get killed. <laughs> Just dirt. Use dirt. Well, I don't you don't know. want them to suffer on the way. Well, that's fair. Uh, there was a wooden bridge that crossed the Chicago River. And as you uh -huh. crossed it, you could watch the wooden ships floating in the port. Wow. You had wooden stables, wooden wood sheds filled with wood, wood carts carrying dry hay, <laughs> wood crates filled with kindling and oil. Uh -huh. Out of a <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Like I, I'm putting them all together, but honestly, everything in this city was made out of wood. I see. <laughs> Not to... Wood carrying various accelerants. <laughs> yeah, basically. And out kindling. of approximately 60,000 buildings, about 70% were completely built out of wood with wood shingles on the roof. Okay. Not a lot of... Buildings were generally surrounded by. I'm not. Oh, I'm not. I'm not done. I'm not oh, done. Sorry. sorry excuse Buildings me. were generally surrounded by lumber yards, furniture <laughs> factories, and paint sheds, <laughs> and almost every wooden house had storage in the basement for kindling. <laughs> now I'm done. Okay. <laughs> or am I? We'll see. So, what building codes existed? were clearly bent and often just completely disregarded. Uh-huh. But what about the fine stone masonry the richer parts of 19th century Chicago was known for, you might ask yourself. 
I ask myself that all the time. I could see you asking yourself. No, I'm, so uh, I thought I'm glad I would, you brought I just it thought up. I'd vocalize it. Yes, thank you. Total sham. So usually those stone facades were basically built in front of wood buildings made entirely out of wood. Oh, uh, okay. So <laughs> like <laughs> one stone wall, everything behind it is wood. Nice. So the lower class are just caked in wood. Yeah. The upper class have the <laughs> illusion of stone yep. and masonry and whatnot, but really they're yep. just living in wood too. Basically. Okay. <laughs> So on Friday, September the 1st, 1871, the Chicago Tribune wrote a column. And in that column, it said, quote, Chicago is a city of everlasting pine, shingles, sham veneers, stucco, and putty. Mm. It has miles of fire traps, pleasing to the eye, looking substantial, but all sham and shingles. <laughs> but they pointed out not the Tribune's headquarters because it was famously fireproof. Oh, really? Well, that's good for a newspaper-y. I bring that up for... No purpose, certainly not to bring it up again in a few minutes. <laughs> also, incidentally, newspapers in the 1800s are a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I pulled, I've got some more quotes later on from newspapers from this era. They had like no sections. They have five or six columns of text. Uh -huh. And the only way you could tell articles apart is there's like a bold heading. Okay. And also there's, there's seemingly no organization. It'd be like an article about the city and then a bold title. It just says obituary in the guy's name and then like an <laughs> ad for shoes. Like, right. And right in the middle of the jumble. I mean, God. Right? Like I'm, I'm glad that someone thought up page numbers eventually. <laughs> how long <laughs> would nice. it have been though? Like how many? Most of them are like four pages. Okay. But they're four like four loose. pages. <laughs> yeah. Large the size pages. of a small child. Maybe like an 11 by 17 kind of thing. Okay. The Tribune. Small Titan. That's still going, isn't it? Sure is. Yeah, that's I think impressive. maybe some of them are, some of the other ones are too. But uh, yeah, no, they have, Chicago's actually known, I didn't know this, but Chicago has a long and proud history of their news reporting. So, okay. Yeah, makes, makes research like this easier. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, Chicago, a city made of wood, was well hydrated with a healthy amount of rain. Was it? No, it's the windy Except city. Except not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not the rainy city. It was faced by the worst drought anyone could remember in the summer and into the fall of 1871. Oh, shoot. Apparently, they got two and a half inches or 63 millimeters in the form of light showers over the course of about four months. That's not very much. It's not a lot, Peter. you know, especially when no. it like sprinkles down on the city. Yeah. Wood-based city, no rain. No rain. As you might imagine, this led to some fires. <laughs> Indeed, Kidding. near midnight on October 7th, a massive fire inflicted nearly a million dollars worth of damage over a four-block area, and it took 16 hours to put it out. Gosh. Every fire company in the city was involved, and the fire took out three of the companies in the process. I'm looking forward to hearing about the details of these fire companies. I don't, I don't go too deep into those, because I should mention that this, this fire on the 17th that caused a yep. million dollars worth of damage and took out three fire companies and took 16 hours to put out, isn't what we're talking about today. Oh, I know. I, I, <laughs> but yeah. that in itself is like... Yeah, that, is, that's a disaster. That's a disaster. Uh, that's not the disaster. That's <laughs> I usually have my notes broken up into sections. This next section is called a cow or a peg leg. Mm. Let's get into it. Age-old question. As hinted at in our last major disaster, episode 29, the popular narrative is that on the evening of October 8th, 1871, a cow belonging to Mrs. O'Leary kicked over a lantern in the barn behind the house at 137 DeCoven Street in West Chicago, which as far as I can tell now is either a parking lot or a parking structure. Uh-huh. So, Google Maps. Times change, I guess. Yeah. So the lantern ignited the dry hay within the wood structure and the rest is history. That's maybe the most known account. Sure, sure, sure. And the one that uh, Brian Wilson wrote a song about. Yeah, kind of. In the last yeah. episode. 
Maybe the less well one is an alternative account involving a one-legged beer courier aptly named Dennis Pegleg Sullivan. Oh, Pegleggy. Uh-huh. Good old Pegleg. Yeah. yeah. So he was a boarder at the O'Leary's house, and the story uh-huh. goes, Mrs. O'Leary didn't like that Sullivan drank, and apparently he, he drank. Uh-huh. Like a Some lot. Contention there. Okay. Okay. So to get around Mrs. O'Leary's judgmental gaze, Sullivan used to sneak into the barn to do his drinking. Mm. And on one of Sullivan's outings to the barn, he lit his pipe and absentmindedly tossed his match into the parched hay. <laughs> <laughs> You're Which, not from here, are you, Sullivan? <laughs> I just drive beer around, man. I don't know about fire. Yeah, I don't know about <laughs> all your tinder, whatever, hay and dry things. So Pegleg Sullivan maintained that he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Shocking, right? Yeah. <laughs> the man accused of starting a massive fire says he didn't do it. Whatever. That's such a weird reaction. He went so far as to sign an affidavit saying it wasn't in the barn and that he was actually running to the barn after noticing the fire, and then he ran inside the barn trying to free the O'Leary's horses and cows, and then he lost his wooden leg on his way out because it wedged in the floorboards, and he kind of half rode a calf to save him. Oh, half calf. (laughs) It's like a coffee. Um, So he's a hero, really. He's either a hero or the starter of a fire. Yeah, in an affidavit that he signed himself, and when I say signed, he signed it with an X. (laughs) But that's the thing that people did. I mean, if if he wasn't literate. Sign with an X, can't I? Yes. A beer courier in the 1870s. Come on. But anyway, whether it was a perturbed cow kicking over a lantern or a one-legged drunkard flinging a match into the hay, just before 9 p.m. on October 8th, 1871, flames from the O'Leary's barn were noticed from the house next door. Mm. What was the city made out of? Better call the fire company. Immediately, one of their neighbors booked it to the fire alarm box. (laughs) The what? Sidebar about fire alarm boxes. So in 1852, Moses Farmer and William Channing invented a telegraph alarm system. So basically Mm. by turning a crank, a signal is sent along a telegraph line. And then at the firehouse, the receiver taps out a number corresponding to the alarm box from which the signal was sent. That's pretty clever. Right? It's pretty good. Like in a time before, you know, phones everywhere. Right. That's actually a really good system, and it's yep. great that they thought maybe fires were a thing that people were worried about. Ingenuity. For good reason. So by 1890, mm. about 250 cities had fire alarm box systems installed, and a lot of them actually work to this day. So if you ever see a big red box attached to a post on a street corner, odds are if you turn the crank, you'll alert the local fire department, and they'll come running. It's pretty <laughs> No, cool. they won't. In fact, <laughs> one was used during a 911 outage in Boston in 2018 to stop a fire in the North End. <laughs> Amazing. Turn the so crank, still there's work. a fire. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> and that actually was maybe even near the site of the Boston Molasses Flood, which we talked oh, about. Oh, wow. So yeah, they're, they're, they've got their dander up all the time. Mm-hmm. So at 9 p.m., the neighbor got to the box, pulled the knob, and nothing happened. No. So I've got, I've got a series of, uh, I'm going to call them oopsies. <laughs> Oopsie number one. So the oh. courthouse where the fire telegraph system sent its signals didn't get the message for whatever reason. Okay. And then it wasn't until almost 9.30 that firemen at one of the fire companies noticed the fires from their watchtower. So it wasn't Mm. even like the central, you know, dispatch or whatever. It was just one of the independent fire companies that noticed the fire at 9.30. It started at 9. Started at 9? Yeah. That's a lot of time. Oopsie number two. Watchmen in the tower at the courthouse also noticed the flames around 9 p.m., but did nothing (laughs) at first. Oh. So the courthouse is the central dispatcher. To be fair... They assumed it was the remnants from the massive fire the night before. You know, the one that caused a million dollars worth of damage yeah, and was unprecedented. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, you know, fire doesn't strike twice, I guess. <laughs> Although it seems like it does. So if maybe. I saw a burning candle, I would hop into the, well, whatever yeah. they were, hop into and 
go running. Probably a wagon. If I lived into fiery, if I lived in fiery woodland, I, you know, I take every yep. fire seriously. <laughs> but that's just me. So these, so these two watchmen, they finally did act on the fire when it seemed to be getting more serious. And at nine thirty, <laughs> the man standing watch rang the wrong alarm box, sending crews in the wrong direction. <laughs> Oh, so maybe it. that's maybe that's oopsie that's two and a half. Number, oh yeah, two point five. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if the second one's so much an oopsie as it is just uh, get off your fucking ass, or <laughs> right. it's more just wanton disregard for one's own job. What's your one job? Is it spotting fire and alerting yeah, everyone? Yeah, it's barely a fucking match. We'll go later. <laughs> So it's a good thing Chicago doesn't have a super on-point nickname like the Windy City or anything. It is called that. The firefighter, the firefighters finally made it to the O'Leary's just before 9.30, and this is about 40 minutes after the fire probably started. So I think the fire started just before 9 p.m. Okay. What they found was an inferno where the barn used to be <laughs> and a rapidly growing chain of other sheds and barns being set on fire by embers blown from one to the other. Oh, shoot. Hey, wind. Thanks, Windy City. Thank you, Wind. Another fire company joined the fray shortly after the first, but they suffered equipment failures pretty much immediately and just made them dead weight, oh. more or less. And more companies were coming, but they weren't there yet. And the start of the fire is a crucial time, as we can imagine. You want to get there at the start. <laughs> you, you want to get there at the start. Not the middle. No. And not the end. No. Then you're just dead weight. You know, like the first 24 hours in a kidnapping is the most important. I feel like yeah. the first 30 seconds in a fire is the most important. <laughs> that is crucial. That's the crucial time. If you yeah. can make it there, then you're laughing. Yeah. So it also, this image of fire jumping from like the barn to a shed to another barn makes me think of when you accidentally start a chain of events and you can see it unfolding. Yes. But you're completely powerless to stop it. Yes. I'm talking like all you can do is watch the poorly placed garden rake knock over your ladder <laughs> and the can of paint fall off the ladder and smash into <laughs> your windshield. Yeah. And it's just like you, you see the rake moving and you're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you have visions in your head of this heroic leap to stop it. Yeah. And you're just like, I'm not going to do that. No, no. Who am I, RoboCop? Just, this is happening. Yeah, this is this happening is now. What's going to happen right now? This is my life. <laughs> <laughs> so the firefighters from the first company that got to the O'Leary's were doing their best, but it amounted to basically spitting on a bonfire. Right. <laughs> Shortly after 10 p.m., Chicago lived up to its nickname and wind blew flaming debris and sparks onto St. Paul's Church, which was almost oh. six blocks away. Okay. So we're talking significant wind blowing that's, this fire. Yeah, that's the distance. So following the kind of drought Chicago had experienced leading up to this night in October, anything that gets touched by a spark immediately goes up in flames and St. <laughs> Paul's was no exception. Ugh, it's, it's, it's almost comical if it weren't so. It is. Unbelievably mm -hmm. tragic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it sounds like a, a Simpsons episode. Right. <laughs> ah. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. But at least there wasn't anything ridiculously flame magnety next door to St. Paul's, like a warden furniture factory. Was there that? There was exactly that. And within oh. minutes, the inferno at the factory eclipsed the burning church. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's going to be a lot of this, and it's not laughing at the fire it's, it's laughing with the fire it's just laughing no that's at not the, right no i don't know what i'm laughing it's, it's absurd it's absurd it. it's the it's imagery absurd. yeah but really like the accounts that you read it spreads like well wildfire that's the reason that you say things spread like hey, wildfire that's a catchy saying yeah last time i think we tried to come up with it we came up with spreads like a plague so at this point all the firefighters could do was toss their axes over their shoulders and shrug because <laughs> what, what are you gonna, gonna do, do? This fire just jumped six blocks and yeah. ignited a church. Do a so. rain dance. 
for all the good it'll yep. do you. Mm-hmm. By 11 p.m., the wind was so fierce that burning debris was being carried up to three kilometers or two miles out over the waters of Lake Michigan. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That is a windy city. In a bit of good luck, the geography of Chicago meant that the south fork of the Chicago River stood in the way of the rapidly spreading flames reaching the eastern and southern sides of the city. Phew. So at least you had a water barrier. There you go. Except... Good luck can go fuck itself, because at around 11.30 p.m., winds of almost 100 kilometers an hour of 60 miles an hour whipped the flames into a balrog that easily jumped the Chicago River. (laughs) Wait, into a what? That's something from The Hobbit, isn't it? Lord of the Rings. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, excuse me. I thought I'd use balrog as a descriptor, because I feel like people that listen to this show probably know what a balrog is. They probably do. Yeah. We're nerds. So unfortunately, Gandalf wasn't here to tell it not to pass, and it passed. Oh, that thing is the Balrog. Did you actually... <sighs> it's been a while, okay? They were talking about the early Doesn't 2000s. Doesn't matter. Giant flaming demon. How are you forgetting <laughs> giant flaming demon? <laughs> That's its name. Giant flaming demon. Balrog. Right. <laughs> In 1853, the Parmalee Omnibus and Stage Company was founded in Chicago, and it provided assistance to strangers arriving in Chicago by transporting them and their luggage from one railroad station to another or to steamship terminals. Uh And then after 18 years of successful, wholesome operation, they decided to build a brand new stable to house their horses and wagons. Hmm. And in about eight seconds on October 8th, 1871, a gargantuan wall of flame jumped the Chicago River and turned the new stables into ash and rubble. Uh, That is a bummer. When you say jumped, what do you mean exactly? Well, I mean that winds of up to 100 kilometers an hour were basically blowing blowing sparks and debris over the river okay so it was just sparks yep. and not not no. i was picturing like fireballs and is it is it because i, I said balrog well that didn't help but <laughs> i mean i'm not picturing an <laughs> actual animated you know person but so without stopping to admire its handiwork, the flames continued. <laughs> now that the fire cleared the Chicago River, it had all of timber-filled South Chicago in which to wreak havoc. Okay. And first up was Coney's Patch, which was yeah. a slum known for bordillos and saloons. Oh. So now we know that the fire is lame. <laughs> <laughs> does not like to party. No, it does not. No. Next... The fire tore through the business district, taking down Crosby's Opera House, the Grand Pacific Hotel, the post office, and the headquarters of the Chicago Tribune. Wait, hold it. I beg to differ. Why Why is that? Fireproof. Well, Fireproof. right? <laughs> unburnable. 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 Much like the Titanic was unsinkable. And Funny wait. you should mention the Titanic. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got, I got stacks of books that I'm going through for a mega disaster that we're oh, putting fun. together for yeah. a certain steamliner. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> that's a whole other thing. So I think the lesson there is maybe don't throw rocks if you live in a glass house uh-huh. or maybe don't throw matches if you live in a pile of kindling. <laughs> yeah. At a that's place where you one. create paper and surrounded by paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So back at the courthouse where the alarm boxes were wired and the lookouts first spotted the flames late and rang the (laughs) wrong alarm bell. Yep. The windows were melting from the heat and small fires were igniting all over the roof. Mm. So I think at that point, they probably got the message. Is burnable. They got it before that. But I I like to think that they were skeptical the whole time until the roof is like igniting spontaneously (laughs) because (laughs) of the heat. Okay, we got to get out of here. The firefighters manning the courthouse did what they could, but by 1.30 a.m., they needed to make a run for it. And it's a good thing that they did because shortly after they left the building, the bell came crashing down through the bell tower and came to a violent stop in the basement. Oh. 
Ding dong. So good, uh, good timing on that one. And yeah. I kind of, again, this is a tragedy, but that image is kind of cool. I mean, yeah. Like in a movie, I would like that scene. That's, that's worthy of a movie. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's loud and woo. Yeah. Hear that for miles. Yeah. If it wasn't clear yet, the fire isn't fucking around because four hours <laughs> earlier, a fire two kilometers or one mile away was a dull glow that didn't spark <laughs> alarm. <laughs> and now the courthouse literally melted out from under its caretakers. <laughs> so, so things is escalating is what yes. I'm saying. Hmm. All of this was mostly a prelude <laughs> because now that the fire reached downtown, the shit really hit the fan. Oh my God. Well, so one of the most stirring accounts comes from the October 17th, 1871 edition of the Chicago Evening Post. Mm. People at the time thought so too, because they actually sold out of that copy so quickly that they reposted the exact same article, the next issue, so wow. that people could actually read it. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So I've got, I've got, I've got a few quotes from, from that. So the brute creation was crazed. The horses, maddened by heat and noise and irritated by falling sparks, neighed and screamed with fright and anger and reared and kicked and bit each other or stood with drooping tails and rigid legs, ears laid back and eyes wild with amazement, shivering as if with cold. Mm. All in one sentence, by the way. So <laughs> different different time. That different is time for writing. <laughs> <laughs> From the roof of a tall stable and warehouse to which the writer clambered, the sight was one of unparalleled sublimity and terror. Ooh. The crowds directly under him could not, under the writer, could not be distinguished because of the curling volumes of crimson smoke through which an occasional scarlet rift could be seen. Mm. It required little imagination to believe oneself looking over the adamantine bulwarks of hell into the bottomless pit. Dear me. (laughs) One of my new favorite sentences. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mini sidebar. Didn't know this. Adamantine means unbreakable. That makes sense because that's what Wolverine's bones are coated in. Adamantium. Adamantium. Yep. Who's the nerd now? Both of everyone. <laughs> Both of us. That's everyone. And everyone listening. The people were mad. The police were powerless, which is also interesting because society. I feel like a society works as long as everyone plays by the rules. Uh-huh. And all I have to do is throw an inferno at a city and good luck keeping the peace. All right. <laughs> the police are powerless. Of course they are. Well, yeah. People are fleeing for their lives. <laughs> You've lost all control. I see you jaywalking. Yeah. Don't do that. In an orderly uh-huh. fashion, people. Screw you, copper! <laughs> <laughs> the people were seized with wild and causeless panics. Causeless? He said causeless, but I feel like causeless. causeful. Depends how you look at it, I guess. I don't think causeful. Yeah, I'll go with that. I, I look at it. I look at it from the perspective of the cities on fire. So uh-huh, I feel like that's yeah. caused a panic. Anyway, that's probably the focal point. Yeah. The people were seized with wild and causeless panics. <laughs> they surged together backwards and forwards in the narrow streets, cursing, threatening, imploring, fighting to get free. Hmm. Here's some more maybe unsurprising stuff. Liquor <laughs> flowed like water because the saloons were broken open and despoiled and men on all sides were seen to be frenzied with drink. So <laughs> licking the pavement, you know, no, basically sorry, the wood. people are people are abandoning the bars like the bar owners are running out and then yeah. all the patrons are running in to free empty booze. all the taps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They smashed windows reckless of the severe wounds inflicted on their naked hands and with bloody fingers and partially rifled till shelf and cellar fighting viciously for the spoils of their forays. Could have just said looting. So there's looting. That's not writing. No. Anyone can say that. Yeah, I guess. I feel like that would happen today. Absolutely. The bars would get looted for their... Yep drink <laughs> as a fire is raging on all four corners it is always interesting to see stuff like that yeah like 200 200 years ago 
this happened. Yeah. And people would react the exact same way now. The I only difference so. is now we're not made entirely out of wood. Although we're kind of <laughs> back to having like mostly wood framed houses. So we kind of are. Mm, true. We're going backwards. But there are fire codes. Anyway, one woman on Adams Street was drawn out of a burning house three times and rushed back wildly into the blazing ruin each time. Insane for the moment. I, th- I think that's a lot of the, the kind of madness, madness reactions that we saw in the fire of London. If you remember uh-huh. a lot of things that didn't make sense, right? People not wanting to abandon their houses. Right. Like this, this, this woman keeps running back. People pull her out and they save her and then just keeps running back in. And right. I can totally sympathize with that. It's like, no, that's my home. My home is safe. It's my everything. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> not yeah, Not to mention it's my everything. So mm. yeah. Everywhere, dust, smoke, flame, heat, thunder of falling walls, crackle of fire, hissing of water, panting of engines, shouts, braying of trumpets, roar of wind, tumult, and uproar. So, so it was loud, sounds, I guess. Sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, all these are like one sentence. So <laughs> a period, maybe? Anyway, doesn't matter. You get a lot of bang for your <laughs> buck or yeah, fair. penny, whatever it cost. So... Just to recap, flames were devouring the city. The smoke was so thick you couldn't see, and heat was oppressive and ubiquitous. Is that you talking now, or this is the That's me. That's me. That's 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 good. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's good. No, there's no crimson. There's no annihilation. (laughs) Certainly no adamantine. So that was me. So while keeping the raging inferno at bay was mostly hopeless, some things worked. So there was a huge steam pump that was used to keep some mills and lumber yards damp, which probably saved them from the brunt of the damage they would have sustained otherwise. A steam pump. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They just kind of diverted. I I imagine maybe the steam onto these uh, lumber yards and just kept everything damp. Wet them down. Yeah. In a page from the Great Fire of London playbook, episode three, I think, firefighters blew up large rows of buildings in an effort to remove burnable material. All right. Which I forgot about that. I mean, I remember when I first came across that in the Great Fire of London, I was like, you, your solution is to blow it up. <laughs> but it kind of makes sense because if you just like do it all at once, there's nothing to burn. Exactly. Take that fire. Yeah. So residents in the fancier north side of Chicago were crossing their fingers that the Chicago River would act as a barrier to the flames moving into their rich neighborhood. Oh, we'll see. Maybe they didn't know what happened at the South Fork of the river. <laughs> Word hadn't spread, I guess. Right. Or maybe they just didn't know that nature doesn't care about your concerns. Because <laughs> before long, the fire made the effortless leap across the northern banks of the Chicago River with oh, the help of those 100 boy. kilometer an hour winds. If you look at a map, like the Chicago River is pretty much the same width everywhere, regardless of the branch. So okay. really, there was no hope of the water stopping it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Early on the morning of the 9th, so this all started on the 8th, Right. In an account of the flames reaching the north side, Lambert Tree, who was a Chicago judge, wrote, and I've got a few more quotes, a lot mm-hmm. of quotes about this, which is handy. That's good. The sparks and flaming felt were now flying as thickly on the north side as I had a short time before observed them in the south division. So flames are in the north now. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. The size of some of the burning material hurled through the air seems quite incredible. <laughs> While on the roof of my house, a burning mass, which was fully as large as an ordinary bed pillow, passed over my head. (laughs) I guess the problem there is that we have no frame of reference. Like, what if he sleeps on tiny pillows? Maybe he just loves a tiny pillow. Judges love tiny pillows, I guess. (laughs) It's not the usual (laughs) sort of measuring tool. No. Is that gate pillows big? (laughs) (laughs) It fell upon the street, and on descending, I had the curiosity to examine it, and found it to be a mass of matted hay. Hay. floating this far that just illustrates the wind and like i don't know what the closest source of hay would be but if it was barns 
as far as where the fire started. Right. That's a long way for some burning hay to go. Damn, huh? Cross two rivers, two parts of the river. Yeah, basically. By this time, which is about 2.30 a.m., a great many affrighted men, women, and children began to appear in the streets, hurrying along, carrying large bundles in their arms and upon their backs, or dragging trunks and boxes. Oh, dear. So according to Tree, by about 2.30 a.m., people were beginning to panic in the north side about as much as they had been in the south. Hmm. which is probably appropriate given I mean, that this yeah. fire is coming their way. I don't know if that counts as panicking. I'm just being sort of pragmatic <laughs> at that point. Right. At this point, especially if you're up on the roof and you're just watching South Chicago burning and hearing all exactly. the screams. Look at that pillow-sized piece of fire. What are those <laughs> panicky peats doing down there? Oopsie number three. <laughs> Although this isn't really entirely an oopsie, but I'm still going to call it an oopsie. Sure. Chicago's waterworks were in the north side. And throughout this whole fiasco, their pumps were supplying the city with all the water it needed to attempt to combat the fire. Okay. So unlike, in, if you remember in London, there wasn't really, you had the sewer system, but there wasn't really a reliable way to pump water places. They were basically carrying it around in leather, leather pails. Leather buckets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here you actually had these, the waterworks supplying the city with water. Okay. I guess that's so we're what sad. 200 years of progress will do. The building housing the pumps was built out of stone, but the interior walls and floor were all wood. So likely due to the sheer heat of the fire, any wood inside the building caught fire and eventually the whole building was burning. Oh my God. By 3 a.m., it was a smoldering ruin and the pumps along with it. Wow. So we learned that fire doesn't have to touch something to set it on fire. (laughs) Heat, I guess, will also do it. Heat will also do it. So just like in The Great Fire of London, again, episode three, if you kind of picture the fire as an evil entity attacking a city. I do. Taking out the pumps is a huge strategic victory. That's quite the death blow, yeah. They had reservoirs that supplied water to Chicago for a bit, but eventually they got tapped out and there was no water left to go around anywhere. Shit. Not great. No. Not great in an already not great situation, Mm, is what I'm saying. Does not bode well. The destruction of the Chicago waterworks marked the end of the resistance, basically. (laughs) The fire companies had no choice but to give up the fight and watch the city burn. Oh my God. And burn it did. (laughs) The south side was hell on earth and the people were fleeing from it as such. Uh So earlier during the fire, they fled to the north side to escape the flames, but that really didn't do them much good because they found themselves in the same nightmare within a few hours. Hmm. I mean, they couldn't have known, but still kind of a bummer. Yeah. (laughs) Kind kind of a bummer that your city's burning down. Yeah. Sorry. What a drag. (laughs) (laughs) So now everyone from the north and south were fleeing further north or west or even east towards Lake Michigan. Right. So a lot of people were forced into the water and they waded up to their noses and had to kind of dodge flaming debris falling into the water. Sure. I mean, that's where I'd be. Right. Kind of a nightmare, though, because it's not not really that much cooler because the city's like burning on top. Burning of you. in front of you. You can't I mean, you can't wade and you got to only go to you can yeah. put your two feet down and like you can you can breathe but you're breathing nose fulls of smoke yeah exactly right and the heat and heat and the ironic thing is like lake Mich- michigan is huge but yeah where are you gonna go yeah no right 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 there right, right there right lake michigan th- you're you're right here exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so people were obviously worried about their shit too so servants <laughs> were thrilled to be burying valuables in backyards as the city burned around them you can imagine oh god a lot of like the affluent people were like quick the silverware yeah and i think there's actually they're burying like some people were burying grand pianos <laughs> in their backyards so that they wouldn't burn their servants were doing yeah Bury my piano. You know what? Uh, Counteroffer, go fuck yourself. I quit. (laughs) (laughs) 
So as we heard from the Chicago Post article, looting was also widespread uh, and to the point where the mayor had to call in the U.S. Army troops to help maintain order. <laughs> God. And on top of that, police also patrolled the burn districts for looters. Uh-huh. And they had instructions that all looters should be killed on site. <laughs> so, yeah, desperate, desperate times. And also, don't touch my shit. Yeah. Like, we're in this together, aren't we? All, interestingly, though, this heavy-handed approach had the effect of a skyrocketing crime rate following the fire. <laughs> so it you didn't really say. have the intended effect, I don't oh, think. Dear. Although I wonder, maybe that's a measurement thing. If you're looking for more crime, you'll find more crime. True. In the same way, if you decriminalize drugs, your crime rate is going to fall because people aren't arrested for having drugs. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, but still, this kill on site thing didn't really do much for the crime <laughs> rate, it seems. <laughs> Throughout the 9th, which is the day after the fire started, the fire continued to engulf the city, moving slowly but surely north the whole time. Okay. It also burned the Chicago Avenue Bridge, which was the main route west from the city, and that was being used by the masses to flee. So mm. now, oh. not a lot of options for now leaving the city. Okay. Which is not great. Finally, though, almost exactly 24 hours after a cow or a drunk started the fire at around <laughs> 11 p.m. on the 9th, the Windy City got a bit less windy and rain started to fall. No way. Now? No. Like, where was this rain the last four months? Oh, yes, right? That's the part that drove me nuts about this. Like, four months of drought where you right. got, like, no rain. And it rains the day after <laughs> a catastrophic fire. Right. I feel like somebody should call Alanis Morissette. <laughs> ain't that ironic is this one actually ironic uh virtually everything in that song is not ironic i've right? heard that that's, it's like rain yeah. on your wedding day no that's just a bummer it's not ironic yeah it's not ironic ironic would just, be if you i can't think of it <laughs> just cut all of that you know it didn't happen a funnier person has a joke about that look it up on youtube the last building to burn down was a doctor's house on fullerton street this is a fun little fact okay i guess it's kind of funny that you know what the last house to burn down was because you're happy that it's over, but it's still a bummer. <laughs> That's like, oh, come on. Oh, you couldn't have stopped one house sooner. <laughs> yeah. Like the whole time he's just been gloating. Like, not me, suckers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now me, suckers. Yeah. It's like the last person killed in a war. That's ironic. That's not no. ironic. It just sucks. I don't know what irony is. I don't think. Irony. Damn it. It's like yeah. a literary thing. No, I... <laughs> Anyway, is that ironic? <laughs> Let's move on. All told, the fire resulted in about 300 casualties, hmm. which again is kind of a shockingly no- low number. It's always, well, it's usually a shockingly low number, but I forget what it was in the fire of London. But it was something I it was low, I think. Was it like six? <laughs> I forget. I don't know. It was, just, it was a small number. Yeah. Given the, the size of the right. catastrophe. The other thing to keep in mind is... <sighs> It's hard to identify ashes. Yeah. As we learned in the Graham Parsons Tragedy Tuesday episode 27 and a half, <laughs> fires need to reach a certain temperature to make cremation successful. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, maybe the kind of temperatures that are generated by setting all of Chicago on fire. So I think that yeah. would be adequate. Might be more than 300. 300 that saying. we know of. Yeah, exactly. We'll have to consult the census. And remember at the time, Chicago, well, shortly before this, Chicago was like 6,000. I don't know the exact population, but it was, it was, it was a lot more than that, actually. Yeah. We're, cut, we're talking tens of thousands of people. Right, so right, 300, right. 300 casualties is not, it's awful, not as much as you would think. All told, eight square kilometers or three square miles of Chicago were leveled. Okay. Which isn't really a crazy area. Modern Chicago is about 600 square kilometers or 230 square miles. 
Uh, but it's also the location of the damage, which was right at the center of Chicago. Sure. Also, keep in mind, Chicago in 1871 isn't Chicago in 2020, so it hadn't sprawled as much. Chicago is much more concentrated. Yeah. It's Yeah, right, right, right. If you look at a modern map on where, because we said the address earlier, if you look at a modern map of where the fire started, uh-huh. it's like downtown Chicago now, but that was farmland at the time, I guess. Okay, yeah. But still, eight square kilometers of damage in downtown. Like, picture that in Ottawa or picture that in whatever city you're in. Just pick the central eight square kilometers and just raise it. I mean, that's like center town Ottawa goodbye, basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. An article titled The Great Calamity of the Age in the Chicago Evening Journal mm-hmm. summarized the damage to the city. An area of between six and seven miles in length and nearly a mile in width embracing the great business part of the city has been burned over and now lies a mass of smoldering ruins. Mm. And I inflected downwards, but in the original newspaper, there's an exclamation mark. Ruins. It's more like a clan. Yeah, ruins. <laughs> all the principal hotels, all the public buildings, all the banks, all the newspaper offices, all the places of amusement, nearly all the great business edifices, nearly all the railroad depots, the waterworks, the gas works, several churches, and thousands of private residences and stores have been consumed. Damn. Everything burnt to the ground. Quite the laundry <laughs> list when you put it that yeah. way. The proud, noble, magnificent Chicago of yesterday is today a mere shadow of what it was. Hmm. That That's from the post, too. Although that, <laughs> that got close to something I would write, but still, sure. that's, that's them. <laughs> Interestingly, though, Chicago didn't stay down for long. While the embers were still smoldering, Western Union reestablished telegraph services by Tuesday the 10th. Boom. Fire burnt itself out on the 9th, and by the 10th, Telegraph is back up. There you go. By Thursday the 12th, most of the newspapers were back on their feet and possibly less likely to call their buildings unburnable. (laughs) About a week after the waterworks were destroyed, the main water supply was reconnected. That building, which was catastrophically obliterated by fire, back up and running within a week. So thanks. Ingenuity. All the business that lost their buildings were operating out of tents. So business resumed. Okay. I admire that. We're not going to stop being Chicago. Exactly. We'll just, we'll make it work. We'll do it in tents. We'll do it anywhere. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, and probably unsurprisingly, some dick merchants, and I mean, like not, not dick merchants, but merchants that are dicks. Yeah. They're not flogging dicks. Well, so what you want. It's a free country. Chase the dream. (laughs) Manifest destiny and everything. Yes. I guess being an asshole in a crisis goes way back. Sure. Because, I mean, we saw that during coronavirus early on people buying up like pallets of hand sanitizer and trying to skyrocket the prices selling it off of trucks and stuff yeah we also heard about people charging other people to help them get off the skyway during the blizzard of 1888 remember in episode 22 oh yeah people got stuck in the trams (laughs) and they like they rushed over with ladders and then charged everybody it'll cost you yeah but it also goes both ways so you had butchers giving away meat to people that couldn't afford it landlords cutting rent and some banks that lost records honored debts on people's words. Wow. That's also, thanks, Banks. Thanks, Banks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Banks. <laughs> it's the last good thing a bank did. <laughs> also keep my money, I guess, I think. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. The Chicago Relief and Aid Society, which was established about 20 years before the fire, were commissioned by the mayor to provide food and shelter for everyone displaced by the fire. So they spent the next three years and $5 million on achieving that goal. Wow. So the Chicago Relief and Aid Society oversaw the employment of 20,000 people Medical care for almost 100,000 people, including vaccination of over 60,000 people against smallpox. Oh, wow. Throw that yeah. in. This was about 100 years before smallpox would be eradicated in, I think, 1978, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and it's about 300 years after smallpox came to Mexico, uh-huh, <laughs> courtesy uh-huh. of Cortex. You know that. Check out episode six. Yes. 
that did not go well. And <laughs> that also involved the quote-unquote Indians. Right. You know it's not India. You know. <laughs> anyway. So virtually the entire United States rallied behind Chicago as it rebuilt. You had massive charitable donations from the president, who at the time was Ulysses S. Grant. Right. One of the coolest names ever. Oh, yeah. You had uh, donations from the army in the form of blankets and supplies. And also you got massive monetary donations from New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, which is actually interesting because they were traditionally trade adversaries to Chicago. Oh, really? But it's kind of neat that Chicago burns down and they're like, whoa, 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 everyone, time out. Let's rebuild Chicago so we can go back to <laughs> competing. I yeah, guess. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it wouldn't be fair. But I guess if a country's competing with itself, everyone, rising tide raises all boats, etc. And this actually even went beyond the U.S. borders. You had donations, including some from England, who donated nearly half a million dollars in cash. Wow, we. Which I thought was kind of interesting. So I guess no hard feelings about that whole revolution oh, thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is very we, we big good then? of the U.K. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that, oh boy. Let's not forget, 100 years before this, Chicago, the U.S. got the land for Chicago because they beat an alliance between the Native Americans and the English. Right. So. <laughs> oh, that. Don't worry about that. Water under the bridge. Is this an attempt at British irony? <laughs> how's, how's Chicago working out for yeah, you? Yeah. Here's half a mil. Just oh, take half yeah. a mil. Yeah, you look like you need it. <laughs> <laughs> so within 10 years of the fire, you couldn't even tell that it happened. Tens of millions were invested in new buildings, and these were all made primarily of non-flammable material. Good thinking. As you can imagine, people yeah. are actually listening to... I imagine there was a lot of new bylaws as well when it comes to building. Right. New building codes. Rule number one, no fucking wood! <laughs> <laughs> rule two, see, rule number one. <laughs> That's all on one page, a giant <laughs> like typeset. Exactly. <laughs> Just like London 200 years earlier... Chicago rose from the ashes of its great fire to be the windy city that we know today. Aha. Uh -huh. That was a disaster. Good one. It sure was. It felt, it felt like we were due for another fire. I think the last like fire we did was almost a year ago for Great Fire of London. Well, yeah, and that was early. I mean, it must have been years ago, like the third episode. Yeah. Yeah, we should average about a fire a year, I think. That's good. Also, a little bit of a teaser. Huh. I was debating doing these back to back, but I'm not going to do them back to back. This fire, which destroyed Chicago and killed 300 people, yeah, huh? was not the most devastating fire in America to happen on October 8th, 1871. Shut the front door. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> really? Same day. Same day. We'll, I'm we'll get staying to that one. tuned. I've done some of the research for it, and I feel like that's going to be on or at least around. That might be part of like our October trilogy or series okay leading up to well, last year we did like a trilogy of despair for october leading up to halloween yeah and that's when we did our black death episodes right. and i think we're gonna make that a thing so october is gonna be a month where i try to pick out particularly grisly disasters okay oh god so all right around october keep your ears open for a fire that happened on the exact same day wow that uh was worse <laughs> <laughs> nature's got some sense of humor and we got some we got we got a yes in the live stream so i think that's a good idea so <laughs> that's that's one of three particularly nasty disasters People coming up spoken. in october all right you got some music for that yeah i do let's hear it well i did not pick mrs o'leary's cow by the beach boys i was thinking about that today and i was wondering if you would have done talk that. about lazy 
Although you uh, should check that. We'll call that an honorary <laughs> pick, but it's not my pick. I was Fair trying enough. to think, I was racking my brain. Just I, I just wanted to think of some piece of music that's just started off sort of innocuous and built to like a fever pitch. Mm-hmm. I know I'm aware of some kind of thing like that, but I just couldn't get it. So okay. I went a different way. Okay. So the band I picked, it's called they're called Fall of Ephrapha, which okay. means nothing unless okay. you have read and are a fan of the book Watership Down. I have not. Okay. But I've had it recommended to me a lot. So Well, it's pretty great. And if so, then you're probably wringing your hands together because so this band uh they are a sort of a post hardcore crust band from UK. Cool. They were around from 2005 to 2000, 2009. All their albums are watership down themed. All right then. And every song <laughs> sort of has a reference to this language that's in the in the book. Anyway, yep. so the song I picked is called Woundwort. Okay. Which is the name of a character, but it's more like the sound like it's this their music it's it's very kind of like like crusty like it's almost like doom metal but it's got sort of a hardcore bent to it like very slow Sweet. and all the yeah. all the the songs are like there's a very sort of minor key feel to them yeah yeah so this song it does start sort of mellow with clean guitar and then builds up to just like pounding and screaming but the overall sense i get it's just this, the vibe that they sort of put across with their chord progressions and stuff. It's like everything is lost. Like we've lost everything. Oh, wow. And it just sounds like so forlorn and just, it's like the sound of despair, but at a like furious, intense volume. Right. So I think that works. Nice. Yeah. It would be a good soundtrack for everything, everything burning around. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there you go. Over to you. All right. Well, you've made me feel super self-conscious about my musical choice because that sounds awesome <laughs> and obscure. Yeah. But you know what? The heart wants what the heart wants, okay? That's right. And it's been about a year since we talked about this band. And it came to mind because a lot of the account... I didn't mention a lot of places by name. And this actually came up and we did like a quick Q&A before doing this. And people were asking like how much time we spend on research. And I was talking about the approach that we take, which is I go for the details that are we think are interesting. But ultimately, we're doing like a... Cole's notes version of history. We're not a history sure. textbook. Yeah. We could have spent 10 hours on the fire of London. Oh, I'm yeah. just distilling it down to the stuff that I think is neat. So anyway, <laughs> I, I, I left out a lot of names and locations. One of the na- names of a location that comes up a lot is like the fire kept burning North. And then there's a place in Chicago that's called Lincoln park. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Look, heart, wants what the heart wants this is a band <laughs> you know the band it's lincoln park yep. named after a different lincoln park in santa monica la okay they were originally also I, I learned this today they were originally known as zero with an x and then they became hybrid theory okay which, that's one of their albums that, that probably raises your opinion of them right lee oh absolutely probably. i'll say this they're not the worst and i like one of their songs they have <laughs> a very special place in my heart uh-huh and you know, there's a lot of bands. We talk about how, like, I think a couple episodes ago, we talked about my relationship with The Offspring and how, like, they're a seminal band for me. They're very important, but I don't really have any use for them anymore. I don't sure. really put them on that much. Yeah. For me, every t- I keep coming back to Linkin Park being like, 
are they, is this a band I still listen to? And they are, their, their songs are still bangers. Don't, don't shake your head. <laughs> I can see you shaking. People that are listening that. only can't our, see you shaking your head. <laughs> anyway, so this, the album is Meteora, and I picked a song that I think maybe is less common. I don't know if this is a single, actually, but I love the uh, song Nobody's Listening. Okay. And this is actually a song that uh, we bonded over. So I, I bring him up a lot, but the guy who did the theme music for our podcast, uh, oh, one yeah. of his projects is called Blank Sun. Yeah. And we bonded a lot over like the music that we grew up listening to. And it seems like we had a very parallel trajectory. Oh, okay. And we listened to spent a lot of time on Linkin Park and talked about this song in particular quite a bit because the beat is friggin' sick it's an awesome song uh the way it ties in again lincoln park also there's a line in there about uh, it says try to give you warning but everyone ignores me kind of makes me think of the alarm boxes there you go not working properly yeah, that works it's mostly in part inspired by the name connection also it gives me another opportunity to rant about how pointless music snobbery is oh i'm with you there we're joking around but ultimately like you don't care what i listen to i don't care what you listen to listen to what you want exactly and don't lie about it and the only reason i'm bringing it up now is because lincoln park gets a lot of flack yeah and actually it happened around the time that i started to move away from one of my at the time favorite podcasts we spent a lot of time shitting all over lincoln park and it's like the kind of people that listen to it and i'm like <laughs> what what why man you know what just lost a fan yeah just listen to what you want to listen to don't why would you matter. shit anyway. on people for listening to I mean, shit on the band all we want. Okay. Also, the other thing that I thought was kind of telling, uh, kind of, I've been going back and listening to a lot of Linkin Park albums lately, and really knowing how unfortunately Chester Bennington's story ended. Right. It is like his lyrics are clear as day. Right. (laughs) Especially in this song. Listen to nobody's listening, and it's like, oh, somebody should have listened. Right. (laughs) Oh, he meant it. Nobody's listening. Amazing beat, amazing band. I still, I still love Lincoln Park, and I think I will till the day that I die. And I know that Nuclear Norm does too. So that's two v one at the moment. So <laughs> I can probably get Gary on my side. I mean, listen to what you want. It's not a competition, but we're winning. It's not. So <laughs> listen to what you want. Make yourself happy, and don't make any excuses. There's no such thing as guilty pleasures. Exactly. It's a stupid notion. You said it earlier. The heart wants what it wants. Exactly. There you go. So that's yeah. That was a disaster. Thanks for joining us. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell a friend to listen. Don't start a fire. Just tell a friend to listen. (laughs) The next best thing you can do, I'm trying not to give those like messed up like, oh, that's a good one. I'm going to steal that one a little bit. What? And I'm going to, no, I'm going to credit. So somebody in the live stream just suggested what you can do to tell a friend to listen. It's to send smoke signals. Hey. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Sonora one of our patrons. There you go. The best thing you can do is to send a smoke signal and tell people to listen. The next best thing you can do is to leave a rating or review wherever you listen. I think Apple Podcasts is probably the best place to do that because I think that helps us get the most exposure. So if you want to do that, that is super helpful. If you want to keep up with what we're doing on social media at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, everything is in one place at www.thisdisasterpod.com. We also have a Patreon dot com slash this disaster pod where you get access to live streams of these live episodes you also get access to micro disasters every two weeks also some occasional bonus content like one recently dropped to go with uh like i said the metric uh episode that we did with nuclear norm there's a turns out there's another metric related disaster and this one was in space i know Nuclear Norm talking about space? Inconceivable. Right up his alley. Like I mentioned at the top, if you ordered a shirt, those are in production at this point and they'll be getting sent out. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, Oh, next time. 
we'll be talking about a little something that might have helped Chicago avoid all these flames. Oh. Keep oh. an ear out for that one. Okay. Keep ear holes open. Intriguing. Lee, you got anything to add? I like totos. Did you say toes? Totos. Totos? You know that kid, the zombie kid? I like totos. Turtles. No. Have you heard of the internet? Yeah. Well, yeah, but there's a zombie kid that likes turtles. <laughs> yeah. And there's another little kid who bit his brother's finger and his name's Charlie. Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 I know. I know funny Charlie. videos. Uh, okay. On like E-Bombs World. We'll post a link to it. Okay, Everyone fine. knows what I mean. Uh, not me. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us. <laughs> and we'll see you in the next major disaster. Bye. Bye. Bye.